Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Drabblecast, episode 421. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week we bring you a Drabblecast trifecta special. Three stories by three different authors read by three different narrators, all revolving around one theme. Our theme for this trifecta, Friends Close, Enemies Closer. We bring you Time Cookie Wars by Benjamin C. Kinney, Sandy by Bruce McAllister, and Oh, What a Privilege to Dwell in the Grand Palace of the Tungarels by Kelly Moore. Ben C. Kinney's a neuroscientist and SFF writer who lives in St. Louis with two cats and a spacefaring wife. His short stories have appeared in magazines including Strange Horizons, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Diabolical Plots, and he was a 2018 Hugo nominee as assistant editor for the science fiction podcast magazine Escape Pod. You can find him online at benjamincinney.com or follow him on Twitter at Ben C. Kinney. Time Cookie Wars is read to you by the talented Avery Alexander. After that story, we'll bring you Sandy by Bruce McAllister. Bruce was born in Baltimore in 1946, and he's a writer of fantasy and science fiction known primarily for his short fiction. Over the years, his short stories have appeared in major fantasy and science fiction magazines, theme anthologies, college readers, and year's best anthologies, including Best American Short Stories in 2007, edited by Stephen King. This one's read to you by Rish Outfield over there at the Doonstief podcast, always putting out great fiction themselves. Check them out at doonstief.org. And to close things out, we bring you Oh, What a Privilege to Dwell in the Grand Palace of the Tungarils by Kelly Moore. Kelly's a writing instructor at the University of Houston, where she earned her PhD in literature and creative writing. Her works appeared in New Letters, Mid-American Review, and American Letters and Commentary, among other publications. This story is a Travelcast original. So, without further ado, we bring you Time Cookie Wars by Ben C. Kinney, Sandy by Bruce McAllister, and Oh, What a Privilege to Dwell in the Grand Palace of the Tungarils by Kelly Moore. smiling at potential donors to the temporal branching lab and two more tour groups to go but my snack stash held only a box of crumbs without even a fleck of chocolate the other graduate students had left some milk and a few wrinkled apples in the break room fridge but stealing those wouldn't be worth the trouble tomorrow for cookies though i'd shift a lot of them my stomach growled past self why did you let the cookies run out current self wants cookies come on past self get with the program i crept back to the lab's main room I had told a hundred rapacious philatelist, it takes you to a different timeline, so you won't change history, and the mass calibration term has 1.3 kilograms of leeway to bring things back. Things like stamps. So, why not cookies? I flicked a switch, and the temporal branching machine began to hum. 
I rifled through the cupboard, setting aside the chocolate chip and peanut butter as I dug toward the Milano's deep within. Excuse me? A woman stood in the break room doorway with a phone in hand, its titanium case flipped open. I said, oh, hey, Santa. I ran out of cookies. Mind if I grab a box? What the hell? Get your own cookies. These are my cookies. I pushed my hand into my pocket and pressed the recall button. Thanks, past self. That's not how it works, you stupid. She hurled her phone at me, but I was already gone, carrying her snacks into my present. I dunked the Milano's edge into the glass and watched the milk drip from biscuit to chocolate. Another Santa said, Oh, Milano's, is this the first time you got them from the past? Wait, what? I dropped the cookie and it vanished into the milk with a liquid plop. My future self, Santa 3, waved a hand dismissively. Anyways, brilliant idea. I do it all the time now. I just need the milk. Do you mind? She plucked the half-empty gallon of milk from the fridge and vanished in a pop of air. What a complete asshat. What is her, my, problem? I slammed my fist on the table inside. I lifted the glass of milk and watched a murky blob of half-dissolved cookie swirl through the white. I had more cookies, but some asshat had stolen the milk. Two could play at that game. I arrived with my arms around my head, but in this timeline, my past self was staring in bemusement. Her phone nowhere in sight. Hi, I waved. Got any milk? Santa 4 recoiled. How would I have milk? You stole it already. What? I didn't steal anything. I mean, not from you. I hesitated. Who else would have the tools and the motive? Does this happen to you a lot? Behind her, Santa 5 looked up from the cabinet and rolled her eyes. Apparently, because all she has left are these peanut butter cookies. Why did I even buy these? Santa 4 whirled around. Because someone kept stealing the Milano's. Hold on, I raised my hands. We can all get cookies, you know that? We shouted in unison. What do you mean you're sold out? The, uh, I'm sorry, miss. The six of you were just in here and... Santa 18's baseball bat hit Santa 31's head with a sickening crunch, and the latecomer crumpled to the floor. The leather-jacketed version locked eyes with me and raised her gore-stained bat. Wait! I raised my empty hands. What's going on? You don't know yet? Santa 18 lowered the bat, her face furrowed with exhaustion. We're such asshats sometimes. Infinite timelines to steal cookies from, we thought. You know what happens when you divide infinite thieves by infinite targets? Every target can still get infinite goddamn thieves. Oh god, I didn't realize. She smiled bitterly. I can't exactly throw stones, can I? Look, future self, if you're new to this, you don't want to go back unarmed. Take the bat. She winked. Plus, now your hands are full. I reappeared with bat in hand, stomach still empty, as a knife spun across the break room floor. Santa's 32 and 33 rustled on the linoleum, struggling for a pistol. Outside the window, a siren wailed over the faint pops of more arrivals. I lifted the bat. Quit it, you two! Something flashed. I lay on my back, my ears ringing, a starburst of agony across my chest. I fumbled with my shirt, searching for the wound, cursing all my past and future selves. Twisted metal stung my hands. Not blood, but the crumpled titanium of my phone case. The other two selves still rustled, fist and teeth and desperation. Cookie thieves I could understand. 
Can't exactly throw stones, as 18 had said. But these asshats came back armed. I rose, gripped my teeth against the pain in my ribs, and lifted the bat once more. I wrenched my bat from the corpse of Santa... whatever. I had lost count sometime before dawn. I pressed my back against the burnt-out shell of an ice cream truck, but no new Santas appeared, for a few moments at least. Guns crackled in the distance. Maybe some locals still held out, confused and afraid, trying to save their last scraps of food from the endless hungry horde of time travelers. Another half mile and I'd be home. The pantry would be ransacked, but I might find a few raw ingredients. Not enough, not of the old kinds, but this world had one resource in abundance. I would get my cookies at last if I had to bake with the blood of the future. Sandy, written by Bruce McAllister, narrated by Rish Outfield. Because she had four arms and a six-fingered hand on each arm, Sandy could look for four-leaf clovers faster than I could. I also understand now, because I'm older and know what you do if you like someone, that she found more of them than I did at the bus stop, but never told me she did. She'd show me only as many as I showed her, probably hiding the others under her big feet, which were more like hooves, though you couldn't see them in the clunky shoes she wore. Why did I think Sandy was a she? Because she had long, blonde hair like human girls I'd known, wore the clothes that human girls wore, and had big, beautiful eyes that stared at me and made my face get hot. And her voice was higher than mine, too. I don't know if she really was a she. It's more complicated than that for the Takus, I know. But she was a she to me, and I don't think she minded that I thought of her as the same gender as my little sister and mother, both of whom she knew I loved. I called her Sandy because I could tell without touching it that her skin, so much paler than mine, was like sand. I'd heard a man a friend of my father's in the apartment building where we lived. He worked on the monorails, too. Say, their skin is like a shark's. I didn't know what that meant. Sand was sand, but I knew it wasn't a compliment. Shark's skin must have been ugly. He didn't like them. Sandy's kind. We exchanged glances at the bus stop that first time and didn't sit together on the bus but looked at each other a lot across the aisle. Those big eyes. The next day, I got to the bus stop early. I lied to my parents about why, hoping. She didn't come early, though, so I sat on the grass and looked for four-leaf clovers. I'd found one before, just one, and I'd thrown it away when it dried up. If I found another, I'd give it to her. But I didn't. The day after that, she did come early. 
I got there first, knelt in the grass, and finally, when I looked up, saw her walking from the big apartment building we both lived in toward the bus stop. She was looking at me, smiling, and I was smiling back. She was making that rolling motion of her body that the takus make when they walk, something about the way their hips are built, and something that disappears when they start to run, running faster than any human can. I'd found a four-leaf clover. I'd certainly had time, getting to the stop thirty minutes early. You do this kind of thing when you're young and hopeful. And as she came up to me, I gave it to her. She cocked her head, as if puzzled, but took it with her inner right hand, twirling it in her two index fingers. She didn't have a thumb, but she didn't need one. The bowed index fingers Takus have are like magic. Thank you, she said. Her mouth twisted a little with the words, working hard to say them, and making a whistling sound as it did. It was wonderful. So we got there, both of us, early, really early, every morning after that, and looked for clovers together, stopping and standing up only when the other kids, humans and Takus both, started to arrive. And we sat together on the bus. We weren't the only ones. Carlos and a Takus, a boy, I remember thinking, because its hair was short, sat together too, and a human girl sat with a Takus with long hair, just like Sandy's. It was nice to have it this way, not like first grade, when we'd sat separately, the Takus at the back and humans in front, and the human bus driver, at least that's how it seemed, meaner to the Takus kids. I don't know why it happened. There was a boy named Kirk. He wasn't big. He'd never acted like a bully. But one day on the bus, coming home, he grabbed Sandy's hair and pulled. He pulled way too hard. He was laughing and looking at the boy beside him, showing off, and that other boy, human, was laughing too. He pulled so hard Sandy made sounds I'd never heard her make, and something like saliva, a lot of it, came out of her mouth, which had only two teeth on top and two on the bottom. Her four hands clenched, and I thought she might be crying. But then she did something I'd never expected. She turned around and hit Kirk in the face with both of her outer hands, which she could swing the hardest. Kirk's nose started bleeding, but he didn't cry. He hit her back. He was ferocious, angry in that way that makes you think someone is mad about something else. He hit her in the face, hard, and when she looked over at me, I could see blood, the clear pink blood the Takus have, running down her face, oozing from the slit of her nose, covering her thick lips, one of her teeth gone. I didn't play sports. I didn't have older brothers I roughhoused with. I'd never hit anyone or been hit. But I knew I had to do something. After all, Sandy had looked at me. I was part of it now. I climbed quickly over the seat and onto Kirk, and it was pretty silly. He was punching and not connecting. I was punching and not connecting. We were too close to do damage, and his human friend was hitting me on the back, which didn't hurt. But then Kirk went limp under me. 
I pulled myself back, looked down, and saw that Sandy's four hands were around his neck, and that he wasn't moving. No, Sandy! I shouted. No! Don't! I tried to pull her hands away, but couldn't. They were like stones. Please! When she finally let go, it was because the bus driver, a big guy, human, with muscles and tattoos on his arms, was towering over us, his face white as a sheet. He was shaking, and I wasn't sure why. I thought maybe it was because Sandy had killed Kirk, and I just didn't know it yet. But Kirk wasn't dead. He moaned in his seat and squirmed to sit upright. I got him off. The bus driver was still white, looking down at Sandy's face, at the pink, honey-like blood dripping from her chin. "'Please sit up front with me,' he said gently to her. And his voice was funny. It sounded scared. "'There's a seat up there right behind me. Please sit there until we get to your stop.' Sandy stood up. I stood next to her. I knew my nose was a little bloody, too, because I could see a red smear on the back of my hand where I'd wiped it. When she took a step, it was unsteady on her big shoes but she headed toward the seat just behind the driver's, and I followed her. The driver looked at me as if to say no, but Sandy glanced at him, and he backed off. We sat down where we were supposed to. Behind us, way back in the bus, Kirk wasn't crying. The other kids were talking, but quietly. Someone said something to Kirk, and he said, Shut up! I was watching the back of Sandy's head her long hair, worried about her face. But I shouldn't have been. Takus are tough, my father always said. They heal faster than we do. When the bus was moving again, Sandy turned to look at me with those big eyes of hers and said, You are a wonderful human being, Argon. I will tell my fathers. A few months after that, we were all, all human beings on Earth, and just ten years since the Takus had arrived to colonize kindly, as they put it, rounded up and put in camps behind fences. The Takus had had enough, my parents said. My sister was still too little to know what was happening, but I wasn't. Enough what? I asked. My father was quiet and then said with a laugh that wasn't really a laugh, They don't want to share any more. I was only eleven, but I knew what he really meant. We don't play well with others. My father said that one day after the separation, when he and I were standing inside the fence, one taller than two men, coils of razor-sharp wire on the top of it, shimmering with some kind of electricity, and looking out at the endless suburbs we'd once lived in, abandoned, and the endless groups of takus, some official, some not, that every day passed by the fence, looking at us, but saying nothing. I was thinking of Kirk, why he'd done what he'd done that day to Sandy's hair, why would you do that? Six months after that, when my little sister was sick and we were worried she would die, we were moved to a better camp, 
one with more doctors, equipment, and supplies. I knew Sandy had made it happen. My father had no idea what I was talking about, but when the envelope arrived in the camp mail, I was sure. At first I thought it was just grass in the envelope. Then, looking more closely, I saw it was dry, curled-up, four-leaf clovers. Thirty-six of them. I counted. I know, the note said, as if she were still talking to me on the bus that day, and in that strange, angled handwriting Taku's fingers make, that you think I am wonderful too, Argon. Sincerely, Sandy. What a Privilege to Dwell in the Grand Palace of the Tungarils by Kelly Moore Good evening. Below you are 2,478 feet of air. Yes, study the carpet, little Wesley. Whatever you do, don't stomp. <laughs> Just kidding. What you should be doing is taking off your clothes to ready yourself for this journey. All of you, Miss Linden, and your glasses too, don't worry. Over two feet of concrete and rebar lay between that long drop and us anyway. Now you all should know, since I just linked my hippolotus, or hip for short, to your brains through your nasal canals, that you are here because you are specifically picked out of your population to serve at the pleasure of the Tungarils. How many got that message? Show of hands? It should feel something like a little finger tickling you behind your nasal canal. You will follow me, please, as we walk the tunnels, which were just built for your kind to move in your signature languid, bipedal manner, and your four wheels. Yes, we haven't forgotten you, Dory. Unseen unless called forth, up and down the glorious expanse in which the Tungarils live. Oh, what a privilege for all of you to dwell in the grand palace of the Tungarils. To play such an important role in the lives of such dignitaries. Shambus, please be sure to mark the physical responses to trigger signs just employed. As we reach the darkness of the inner cavern, you must begin to navigate by zunts through your connection to my hip. Do you feel a certain pull towards my voice, a strong urge to follow that itch behind your nose? You will have a prosthetic hip of your own once you master zuntsing, though it will of course lack the telepathic abilities of a natural one. You'll find zuntsing is a bit like hearing, in the way that taste is like smelling for you. Soon enough, you will be able to zoonce not just the distances of the path before you, but also the forms and faces in front of you. For instance, I can now zoonce from your contorted expressions as you fall upon your knees that the zoonces in your heads, coupled with the sounds in your ears, which hear an entirely different frequency, are a bit overwhelming for you at this moment. You will learn to ignore the sounds in your human ears the way your eyes long ago grew used to ignoring the nose all day. Today, you must start, like children, by putting your index finger firmly in your human ears. Yes, that's it. Stick your tongue out if you like. You'll catch more high-frequency red waves in your nasal cavities this way. Oh, man, Vita, already it starts. Roy, stop her, please. Folks, pay no attention to the pretty patterns you think you see in the pitch black. Your eyes will be of no more use here. In fact, they are a danger to you. Envisagement is powerful in your kind, isn't it? I can't tell you how many before you have imagined in complete darkness an angel, a giant luna moth, a colorful helium balloon, and longed for that image like a savior so passionately that she simply followed it off the edge of the path into the expanse. 
In a moment, we will discard them, your eyes. But first, a reverie. Let us pause in absolute stillness and just zoonts for a moment. Zoonts, the click-click-clicking all around you, in the tunnel ahead, the expanse below, and the faces next to you. Over time, those clicks, which are emitted at a high frequency from every hip in this cavern and bounce off surfaces before returning to you, will differentiate into a diversity of zoonses that you will learn to associate with just as many shapes in the world. Now for a quick rundown of the rules and culture of the Tungarils. Our kind live divided into three separate lobe dwellings. Two lobes at all times must have conjugal activity in order to keep the population's generative rate ahead of the disintegration rate. Their typical growth span is five years, so as you can see, this is the only way. The third lobe may have conjugal activity as well, but only by petition approved by both of the other lobes' chairmen, who are often busy and would each prefer the others to sign first. Typically, the third lobe is divided into pods for important activities not easy to perform while generating, such as designing bridges and other infrastructure projects, running small businesses, upgrading technology, governance, and, oh yes, human experiments. Newcomers like you spend most of their time serving in the latter pod. Not to worry, though. Most of these experiments involve language and may remind you a bit of your language poetry. Never heard of it? Hmm. Note that, Shambliss. Oh, yes, I sense that all of you want to know in what capacity you will serve. Not to worry. Our pursuit is dignity above all. I believe your word for this sort of job is butler. We have, in fact, designed these halls and your quarters based on the servant quarters in a grand 19th century English house in order to put you at ease. Shambliss, mark physical responses to trigger signs. I'll be honest. So far, we've kept you all rather heavily sedated. In certain regions of your brain, such as emotions, talking, and fight-or-flight responses, that is. We do want this to be an easy transition for you, but ultimately you must choose for yourselves to live here. Or die, honestly, but that is an option. Oh, we've reached your quarters. Please, find a bed for yourself and lay down. Yes, Tempur-Pedic pillows and memory foam mattresses all around. Beside each bed is a prosthetic hip of your very own, lacking the telepathic powers and tentacles of a natural one, but useful for zoonsing nonetheless. In a moment, I will remove my hippolatus, leaving behind some extra helpful chemicals for you in this transitionary period, and you will be free to put on your own. We will reconnect tomorrow, but for this evening after I withdraw, I think you'll find yourself severely lacking without your hip. Put it on. Use this time to practice zoonsing. Navigate the room. Get to know each other with your hips. Don't worry. We'll lock the door behind us so you'll be safe from getting lost or <laughs> falling off the expanse. We've put bisseroons in the corner keep in case you have to relieve yourselves. Pretty self-explanatory. Now, before I go, there is the matter of your eyes. We have found the best way to avoid delusionary episodes, which really are quite dangerous to you, is for you to remove them early on yourself. This memory will shore up your understanding that the mirages in your imagination are <laughs> simply mirages. Would you believe me if I told you that you will remove your eyes yourself of your own free will? <laughs> You've already been anesthetized, and the internal snips were made by my Hippolatus. All that's left is to, excuse me, but there's no better way to say this, to pop them out. Does that sound horrific? I know you've been rather attached to them for so long, but they're no use to you here, and you really will find it a relief when they're gone. 
and now there may be some discomfort as I withdraw my many tentacled hippolatus from your nasal passages. Not pain, but an overwhelming rush of all the zoonces the hip would normally filter. Like a searing bright light that only grows brighter or the rushing of high-pressure air up your nose until you can't breathe, coupled with every emotion we've suppressed for you thus far. I think you'll find it quite a relief to pull those dead bulbs out and replace them with your hip. It'll go in nicely through those sockets and feed in behind your nasal passageway, make everything feel normal again. Yes, yes, excellent, Daniel. There you go. Th Janie, yes, very good. Well, you can you can keep them if you like, or just feed them to the bisseroons. <laughs> all right, all right. As they say in your world, good night, and until tomorrow. And that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed it. Let's go now to our 100-character story winner this week by Ichabod. Here goes. Wait, not yet. I'm so close. I almost have it all figured out. Ha, that's a good one, said someone, or something, or no one. 100 Character Stories. We do a weekly contest in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org that you yourself can participate in by going there in the Twabble section and writing a 100 Character Story. We might pick yours as the winner and post it out on social media as well as produce it here on the show. Give it a shot. And while you're interacting with the Drabblecast, as we love you to do, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or at Drabblecast and all of those. Go to our website, Drabblecast.org, where you can buy cool merch like anthologies and mugs and pins and stickers and all sorts of cool stuff. And while you're there, consider donating to the Drabblecast if you enjoy our show. We run completely off listener support, and we appreciate whatever you can give. If you subscribe for an automated $10 a month, we hook you up with Drabblecast B-Sides, which is an extra podcast we do with extra stories each month. And that really helps us keep going, folks. We appreciate you doing that. The Travelcast is brought to you with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Blog about us, write us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, spread the weird. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Ali Goldeper. Our program was brought to you by Bo Kyer, Jason Smith, Tom Baker, Melissa Henderson, Abby Hilton, a fetus with the voice of an angel, Adam Prott, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you not to worry. Most of these experiments on this podcast involve language and may remind you a bit of your language poetry. Surrounds like clothing, all tussled and ready to toss. All tussled and ready to toss. He mutters these words to his Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. 
the team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.